0: There was a man who was highly respected, not only in his own community, but also in his place of occupation. What people respected most about this man was his authentic humility that he displayed in every aspect of his life. In fact, uh, at one particular occasion, um, his town, the officials in the town, actually presented him with a gold medal of of humility to honor him. Uh, For the astonishing humility in which he lived. Well, people were really put off and shocked when just a week after he had received that award, uh, that the officials actually wanted to take that medal back from that man. And they were appalled that this man would be treated, this good and humble man would be treated in such a terrible way. And they demanded an answer. And the officials of the town simply responded. They said, we didn't want to take this medal of humility back, but we felt like we had no other choice when he actually began to wear the medal. You know, we are hard-pressed to find true examples of actual humility today. And I'm not talking about the kind of humility that you and I try to put on to try to convince other people and to get the praise of other people that we are, in fact, humble when we're not. I'm talking about actual humility. Every once in a while, we may see it in those around us, but we can never see it in ourselves because the moment that we do, it's gone, it's fleeting. Uh, one thing that we are missing from the entire culture around us in which we're living at this moment is any resemblance of humility at all. And I'm not talking just in the lives of unbelievers. I'm talking about in the lives of believers as well. In fact, the only place I think that we can actually go and be confident that we see a, a true example of what humility looks like on display is to look at the life of Jesus Christ. Now, if you remember last week, we began to look at the circumstances surrounding Jesus' birth in Luke chapter 2. And we walked away really understanding that even though there are kings that are in control, that they are ruling over their people, that God himself is sovereign over all. And for me, I don't know about for you, but for me, that was a timely and encouraging message. I just needed to be reminded that God is control of all and that he hasn't lost control at all. So that was encouraging. But this week, we want to look at another characteristic of God. Uh, Last week, we saw uh, the sovereignty of God. Today, we want to see the humility of God. And whereas the sovereignty of God message, I think, encouraged us, I think this this idea of the humility of God really challenges us, especially in the time in which we are living. So today, we're going to have just one point, God's astonishing humility. God's astonishing humility. Now, after Luke provided for us, let me back up a little bit. After Luke provided a description of Caesar Augustus, the self-proclaimed savior of the world, and after he described this decree that went out that caused everybody within the Roman Empire to return to their ancestral home for the purpose of registering for taxes, uh, now he begins to describe and introduce the actual savior of the world, and he comes in striking contrast. Caesar Augustus, when we look at him, he he used his fame and his position uh, to advance his own selfish purposes, to get the people to serve him. But when Jesus comes on the scene, he uses his power and position to serve others and not ultimately to be served. Now, We want to look at just two verses. With that in mind, we look at two short verses. Look at them, verses six and seven. We pick up and we read. And while they were there, the they that are referring to uh, is 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 Mary and Joseph, and, and, and the there is Bethlehem. This is Mary and Joseph when they got to Bethlehem. The Bible says the time came for her to give birth and give birth to her firstborn son. And wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, to have any idea of the significance of what we just read, and to understand the significance of how Jesus came, we have to first understand from where he came. Uh, Mary was going to have a baby, that's what's being described here, but this baby was going to be like any other child ever born before or uh, born since. Uh, This was not going, he was not going to come about through an act, a natural act of man, but rather the supernatural uh, power of God through the Holy Spirit who would bring about life in the womb of this virgin Mary. And he would be fully man, but he would also be fully God. This birth is going to mark his human existence but, but please understand, this wasn't the beginning of his existence. He had pre existed with his heavenly father from eternity's past, which means there was never a time he was not. There was never a time in which he was was not existing. Uh, this, is, this is so hard to understand. If you think about it long enough, you're either going to give up or your whole, your whole head is going to explode trying to get your arms around that and figure that out, that he had no beginning. He's always ultimately been here. And, and so what we find is that Jesus was the king of kings and he was the lord of lords and that through him all things were created through him and by him and for things everything that exists came into existence because he put it here this is who he was again king of kings lord of lords no beginning no end he had infinite power infinite knowledge infinite authority over all this is where jesus came from But here in verse 6 and 7, we see where he came to. And understand this is however Jesus came, even if he would have come as a king or an emperor or if he would have come um, just as any type of royalty, then we have to understand that in him coming, the level by which he humbled himself would have had to be infinite, Okay, so become, being God in heaven, in his position to be able to come on earth, even to be the greatest king of the world, would take infinite steps of humility to arrive there. But Jesus Christ did not come as a someone. He chose to come as a no one, at least in the eyes of the world. He, he, he didn't choose to come in prosperity and privilege and fame. He chose to be born in poverty and misery and anonymity. Now, Luke gives us an accurate and true picture of Jesus' birth. Now, remember that the distance that Mary and Joseph would have had to travel while she was almost ready to give birth would have been about 90 miles between Nazareth and Bethlehem. And I know that most of the times we think that they were traveling by donkey. There's the good husband leading the donkey with his pregnant wife, Mary, on a donkey. But you know that this narrative or none of the other gospels mentions that they traveled by donkey at all. In fact, even though it's, it's clearly possible that they did, it was most unlikely because of their level of poverty. So here's a very strenuous, very difficult traveling with a woman who was about to give birth over a period of 90 miles would have been very difficult, but the difficulties kept coming when they actually got to Bethlehem because the very inn that they were expecting to stay in, that they had made plans to, to stay at, was full. There was no room for them in the inn. Now, when we hear the word inn, we got to be careful with what we think of. Don't think Hotel 6. Don't think, uh, don't think a Holiday Inn Express because it would have been nothing like that. This would have been most likely, would have been um, a guest house. Uh, the Greek word there is actually uh, katalima. And a cataleman was actually uh, a a separate dwelling outside of of the main house. It was just made up of one large room, and usually people passing through would come and possibly rent it out from a particular family on that night. Oftentimes, caravans would use this, and they would just pile everybody in from that caravan in that place. So they were rough rooms in and of themselves. And this is where Joseph and Mary had planned to stay. It could have very well have been uh, owned by one of their own families family members. But remember, they can't call ahead. They can't make a reservation. They're assuming there's going to be room. They get there. There is no room for them in the inn. And let me point out one more thing, not to disappoint, but there's no mention anywhere here or anywhere else of the crotchety curmudgeon that was the innkeeper that turns the mother of Jesus away into the dark night, dark and cold night. We we don't see any evidence of that. And it's just a reminder. The reason I'm pointing these things out is because, again, we tend to romanticize this story and we begin to believe things that the text of Scripture doesn't even accurately or doesn't even portray within itself. Well, they have to find a place. They're desperate at this particular point, so they're going to find the next best place, hopefully, something that has some kind of covering and some kind of surroundings. So, what do they do? They look to go to basically a stable. Now, it, we're not exactly sure exactly what this is. It could have been something attached to that house, that Ketalima. Um However, it, it could have also be, uh, and this is probably more accurate, I think, uh, because in the, it, it probably was a cave. See, by the second century, it was believed and even written by Justin Martyr that it was actually a cave that they actually... <coughs> excuse me, that they actually stayed in that night. And the cave would have made perfect sense. The animals would have been huddled in there. They would want to protect them from wild animals. They would want to protect them from thieves. So it was a common place for people to put their animals. And having no other place to go, this is where she goes to birth her firstborn son. And when she does birth that son, The Bible says she wraps him in swaddling clothes. Again, be careful of what you're thinking. Don't think 500-count Egyptian cotton. Uh, Think rather of rags that are just stripped apart and wrapped together around this baby to do what? Not only to protect the child from the elements, but to protect the child's arms and his legs. They were bound tightly together, just as we do with our newborns, to make sure that they don't hurt or, or harm their arms or their legs as they're kind of thrashing around. It's to bring comfort To them and bring security and safety and warmth to that child. And then when she takes the child, she wraps him up. Where does she places him? She places him in the manger again. Don't think wooden manger. If indeed it was in a cave, it wouldn't have been a, a, a wooden ca- uh, manger. It would have been something that would have been honed out in rock, kind of like a, a basin. It was a trough for animals to be able to eat from. And it was smart to have put the baby here because it would have been uh, probably um, carved out of the side of the cave, and so it would have protected him from the trampling, from from being trampled on by the animals that were surrounding him at this particular point. Now, I'm not sure if this is how you picture the birth of Christ. In fact, some of you are probably a little upset at my description. You're upset because there's no donkey, no innkeeper, no wooden manger, and you're thinking to yourself, thank you so much for, for completely destroying my nostalgic view of the Christmas story. Christmas will never be the same again. And I would say, I kind of took it lightly on you. At least I didn't take the approach from Kent Hughes, who in his commentary describes the birth of Jesus in terms of this, of sweat and pain and blood and cries as Mary reached out in the heavens for help. The earth was cold and hard. The smell of birth mixed with the stench of manure and an acrid straw made a contemptible bouquet. Trembling, trembling, Carpenter's hands, clumsy with fear, grasp God's son, slippery with blood, the baby's limbs wavering helplessly as if falling through space, his face grimacing as he's grasped in the cold and his cry pierced the night. Now, this is a very raw, but I believe accurate picture of what it was actually like when Christ was being born, the Savior of the world, the King of kings, and the Lord of lords. But, but, but if, if you don't like it, don't be angry with me. Don't be angry with Kent Hughes, but rather blame Luke. Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wasn't seeking to romanticize the birth of Jesus Christ, but rather to humanize it, to make it feel very real and very common and very raw. He understood that Christ's humility in which he came in in, in all of his poverty and all of his misery and all of his anonymity, that you and I would never understand the lengths that he went to humble himself for us unless we had an accurate description of what actually took place. And this was just his birth. He was born in humility. The rest of his life was marked by humility. The Bible says that he came to his own, but his own would not receive him. Even his own parents, even his own family at one point, thinks that he's lost his mind, and they come to try to get him and try to take him away. Uh, There was a time when large crowds began to follow him, yes, but only when he gave them exactly what they wanted. Uh, As long as he performed miracles for them and healed them and fed them, they were fine to be able to have Jesus in their life, but the moment Jesus said no, they wanted nothing to do with him, and they rejected him. And his humility continued even into his death where he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, which was the most humiliating way of death because it was four thieves who would ultimately be crucified. And then even in his burial, he doesn't even get his own tomb. What does he do? He has to to be placed in a tomb that is ultimately borrowed at this point, which would have been fine because if you know the next of the story, he was only going to borrow it for three days and then come back to life. But everything about Jesus, from his coming to his going, is marked by humility. Let me ask you this. Oftentimes we say, you know, we just want to be like Christ. We want to be more. We're being transformed into the image and likeness of Christ Jesus. Paul even comes and says, follow the example of Christ. And then he says, follow me as I follow Christ. Okay? So the whole idea, follow the example of Christ. Imitate Christ. But let me ask you this question. Think about it for a moment. What aspect of Christ are we supposed to be imitating? His glorification or his humiliation? Now I think we know the answer to that. I, I think we know that we are to be following in his humiliation, but the pride within each and every one of us want to join in in what in His glorification. That's what pride wants to do. God says, no, it's the reverse. You're not going to imitate Christ now that he is seated at the right hand of the Father. Instead, we are to imitate Christ in the humility in which he lived every moment of every day here on this earth. So, obviously, humility was on the mind of Christ. It was certainly in his life, but it was also all the way through his teaching. I was blown away this week of going back, just seeing how many times Jesus taught on the very subject of humility and the need for us to humble ourselves. In fact, one of the very first sermons, the most well-known sermon that he preaches, right, in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus begins this way in verses three and four. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. What Jesus was saying is the way for you into the kingdom of God is is in a position of humility. Humility. When he talks about the poor in spirit, he's talking about those who can claim nothing for their own. And when he talks about the meek, he's talking about those who seek nothing for their own. He says, you want to enter into the kingdom of God, the only way is by humbling yourself. And then, of course, it's interesting on his way to be crucified on the cross He's journeying with his disciples, and he knows, and he just gets done telling, hey, I'm going to get there, and the Son of Man is going to be crucified. And the good old sons of Zebedee begin to sit there, and they begin to desire to be where? What position do they want? They want to take part and imitate him in his glorification by saying, hey, let us sit on your right. Let us sit on your left. And here's Jesus' response. Matthew 20, verse 27, he says, And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So to enter the kingdom of God, it's through humility and our faith and submission to Christ Jesus. To be great in the kingdom of God, it is by humbling yourself. And then let me give you one more example. In John in John, we read that right before Jesus is about to be crucified, the night before, when he sits down, he breaks bread with his disciples. What does he do at the end of that? One of his very last acts, he, he sits down and he begins to wash the feet of his, his disciples. The disciples that, of whom one is going to crucify Christ, the rest are people like Peter are going to deny Christ. The rest are going to flee and run away from him. And be scared to death that this whole thing has fallen ultimately apart. But yet, what does Jesus say? He says, now that I, your Lord and Savior, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. He says, what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus Christ is to live in consistent and constant humility in our service to one another. But yet, all of this teaching and all of this example Throughout the life of Christ and the teaching of Christ, we see so little humility in the world, and in our own lives. Andrew Murray wrote this. He says, How little this is preached, how little it is practiced, how little the lack of it is felt or confessed. I do say how few attain to it. Some uh, um, recognize a measure of likeness to Jesus in his humility, but how few ever think of making it a distinct object of continual desire or prayer. How little the world has seen of it. How little it has been seen, even in the inner circle of the church, even in the lives of Christians. If you look around, I said this in the very beginning, what I see, there seems to be a complete and utter lack of in the midst of all the hatred and the fighting and the resentment and the hurt feelings before everybody is this characteristic, the characteristic of Christ, humility. The very thing that demonstrates that we are actually followers of Jesus Christ. Now, the question as always is, how do we display that Christ-like humility? And I think the best way to answer it is to give the example that Paul himself gives in the book of Philippians chapter two. Let me read these words for you. Philippians chapter two, verses three and four. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind in you, that was also in Christ Jesus. What we need to understand is that pride puffs us up, making us feel and, and in an attempt to convince other people that we are actually more important than we ought or that we are. And what Paul is saying here is that the root of true humility, the only way to get there is through self-denial, denying Our rights, denying our wants, denying our need for the recognition of other people. In fact, Jesus commanded the very same thing. Jesus commands that we deny ourselves, deny ourselves in every way. Uh, our desires, our will, our ways. That's how we come to faith to begin with. Say, not our way, but your way, Jesus Christ. But we continue to live outwardly towards other people. We deny ourselves. And I love this part. He says, and pick up your cross and follow him. What does it mean to pick up your cross? It means the cross is an item of, of, of death. And the reason that we carry the cross every day is, yes, we deny ourselves, but every day we have to crucify the flesh and our pride. Every single day that we live in order to remain where God wants us in, in, in humility of following him. And when this happens, Paul says, when you put those two together, recognize others more important than ourselves, then we begin to serve other people Right? And then what's the outcome of it? That we are sharing the very mind of Jesus Christ. So that's what it looks like humility in Christ, and we see it through Christ's life. He's our example, considering others more important than ourselves, making sure that we look not only at our own interests, but the interests of others. But let me just give you three ways to apply this, maybe just even one more step and even more specifically. And some of you are not even going to listen to this because these issues are so sensitive that you may miss the point, but I'm going to try and I'm going to trust that God is going to be able to drive it home to your heart and you're going to get it. When you and I humble ourselves, we don't feel the constant compulsion to share every thought and opinion on social media. The constant desire to be heard heard and express one's opinion with the belief that people will actually want to hear it and will actually be better off for hearing it is the very essence of selfish ambition and conceit. Let me encourage you with something. You don't have to express every thought inside of your mind. You don't have to respond in to, to every Word or every false notion that's out there in the world because many times we either do it in the wrong way or, 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 or we end up saying the wrong thing. You don't have to respond to everything, it is not true. Contrary to cop- popular belief, uh, silence is not violence. In fact, your silence might keep the violence from occurring. Number two, when we humble ourselves, we stop judging the condition of a person's soul based on whether they wear a mask. Or not. Now I know that I'm touching on something that everybody seems to be very, very angry about. And and I've never seen anything like this in my lifetime, I don't think. How in the world can anyone know so much about a person and know the very value of their soul based simply on whether they wear a mask or not? If you, if, you, if, you, if you wear a mask, uh, many people think that immediately they just have to look at you and think that you're a card-carrying liberal. You drank the Kool-Aid. You are officially a lemming, and you hate America. You hate everything about it. You hate freedom. Now, it could just be the fact that the reason that, um, that you're wearing it is because you just don't want to get sick, but that's not what people judge you about. Or on the other side, we have people who ultimately will sit there and say, well, listen, I'm not wearing a mask. And the people that look at those non-mask wearers, what do they begin to think? They begin to look at them and they go, you know what? That person only thinks of themselves. They have no care for the preciousness of life around them. All based on, now it could be that they forgot the mask, it could be that they don't have it, it, could be because they have asthma, or it could be because they honestly do not believe that it's going to help with the spread of a virus. But nobody thinks that way. Everybody is hyper judgmental at the heart of other people. And the only way to be in that judgmental state all the time is to elevate yourself and humble everybody else. And it's the very opposite of what God has called us to do. When we humble ourselves, we just realize that this is all just nonsense to get so riled up about such ridiculous things. Let me give you a third and final. And when we humble ourselves, we become more effective in advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you hate masks, which I do, I want you to know that I don't wanna put one on. It fogs up my glasses, I can't see anything. But if I'm gonna go somewhere and I'm gonna be around town, I'm gonna to wear one. Do you know why I wear one, even though I loathe it and don't really know if it actually helps anybody? Is because the people around me in the community that I'm trying to win for Jesus Christ, the majority of them are concerned. And so I want to be concerned about the things that they are concerned about, whether I'm fully convinced of it or not. It doesn't matter if I'm convinced of it or not. It doesn't even matter if it's true. What matters is it's true for them, and I want to be sensitive about that. And so what am I going to do? I'm going to put on a mask. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Well, Mike, you're just talking about appeasing people. No, I'm talking about serving people. I don't want you to appease people. Because what what you're thinking in your mind is, everybody is always offended about everything. And you're absolutely right. And then you say, well, then where is it going to stop? When do we, we can't do anything. That's what everybody's attitude is. But that's not necessarily true here's what I'm, I'm not asking you to be people pleasers. I'm asking you to serve people. There is a difference. And in doing that, here's the key. The key is to determine what is an essential offense. When is it the best time to offend somebody? Because you will about something. But what I'm suggesting that you do in humility is to not be offensive in the areas of things that don't matter, but yet, be offensive when you have to be in the things that truly do matter. This was, this was Paul's life. Do you remember when he, said, when, he, when he said, hey, look, I've been serving you, and, I, and, I, and I've worked for you, and he's talking to a group of people that he had shared the gospel with, and he says, and I have every right in the world to make a living off of you, and he says, but I didn't even take a dime. Instead, I worked not to, in essence, to offend you. He didn't want to take anything away or offend them and and have them be able to say he's only in it for the money. He was willing, even though he was right to earn money from his ministry, he didn't do it. He put those rights aside in order to be able to present the gospel because he knew the gospel would be offensive enough. Or when we think about it, when he talks about whether it's okay when he's writing to the Corinthians, he begins to talk about whether it's okay to eat meat or not eat meat and the people were split about it. And he says, really, biblically, theologically, there is nothing wrong with you eating meat that was sacrificed to idols because there is no such thing as an actual idol. That's his argument. So he could just sit there and say, so forget it, I'm gonna go eat like crazy. He says, no, here's the humility. But if it causes my brother to stumble... I'll ever never eat meat again. Do you see the humility in that? You know why? Because whether I eat meat or not meat, it just doesn't matter. It has no eternal value at all. And so we've got to come to the point where we're sitting there and say, listen, I'm going to offend, but the only offense that I really need to be giving is that which is absolutely essentially true of God, the word of God, and the gospel of Jesus Christ. So why fight things that are so unessential because I guarantee this, if you're faithful, here's what I'd rather do. I'd rather be inconvenienced to wear a mask, have my glasses fog up, feel like I can't breathe and feel like this whole thing is ridiculous and be able to see people and at least show people that, hey, bro, I respect you and I care for you in order for me to get the opportunity to be able to share the gospel because I wanna take away every, every, um, every offense to the cross, but I'm not going to remove the offense of the cross. Mask or no mask, when I begin to share with them that they are sinners in need of a savior and that they repent from their sin and place their faith in the completed work of Jesus Christ, that there's nothing that they can do to earn whether they wear a mask or not wear a mask, whether they are Republican or Democrat, whether they feel as though they're good people or bad people or good father or bad father, whatever, none of that matters. All that ultimately matters is that we recognize ourselves as sinners and we humble ourselves and place our faith in Jesus Christ. But let me ask you a question. How will they ever know what it looks like to humble themselves if the followers of Jesus Christ will not put on the display of the humility of Jesus Christ himself. I think so many people maybe don't humble themselves because they don't see enough examples of the people who claim to follow Jesus Christ doing it themselves. If you want to make a difference in the world, be like Jesus. Humble ourselves. Look at others as more important than ourselves. Look not to serve ourselves, but look to serve other people. Keep in mind, not, not as just doing good, but in light of the very Savior who has saved us. Let us be like him. Let us pray and seek. I don't know what you pray for. But, but maybe, as, as I read the quote earlier, maybe what you and I need to do is say, God, my pursuit is going to be the very humility of Christ. Let me display this for a lost world, not, not, not to try to win favor for you because you have granted me favor. God, give me the Christ-likeness that you have. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we thank you for today. God, you are a good God. God, I pray that you would open up our minds and our hearts and still, still, I, I, I can imagine people in homes still sitting there and still coming up with every example in the world not to be humble, not to humble themselves before others, not to consider others more important than themselves. God, I pray that they will recognize that through the power of the Holy Spirit. God, in all those conversations, that is pride, 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 and bring us to the place of Christ-likeness. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. Love you so much, church. Can't wait until we get together and worship together. Until then, let us seek the humility of Jesus Christ. Love you so much. Bye-bye.